Well, Father, it is with true humility and holy purity that we do want to bow humbly before you this morning. And we want to take with anticipation your Bible and open it and receive a word from you. Thank you, Lord, for the transparency of Scripture. Thank you for the, the uh, always and ever relevance of your word, regardless of the era or the time frame in which we find ourselves. What a timeless word it is. Thank you, Father, now for uh, just what it means to us to gather like this. Father, may these be valuable times of hearing your word, of listening to the voice of your spirit within, and of going from here and renewing our commitment to walking in obedience. So take the scalpel of your word now and be the surgeon and do the work that needs to be done. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving today. Amen. Well, it was uh, about 1985, and Janet and I were um, in our very first ministry. I was the minister of youth and music at a church in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. And uh, one evening, after concluding the evening service, a young man came to me and um, He said to me, Pastor Van, we want you and your wife to travel with us on an all-expense-paid trip to Cancun, Mexico. And so we did. I didn't even pray about it. Do you know what it's like to have opportunities like that, that come from nowhere, that are most unexpected, and they are really, when you stop and think about it, completely undeserved? There was no real reason why we should be chosen out of anybody else in the church. I suspect it was one of those pastoral perks that we have to be careful to appreciate. And, you know, we had a great time in Cancun. But I was thinking about how um, I didn't pay for it. I, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. But I thoroughly appreciated and enjoyed it. Let's take my story and let's put a little twist to it. Let's pretend that it wasn't just a vacation opportunity. Let's take it a step further and use this to prepare our minds to hear the story that we have today from God's word in Genesis, beginning in 43. Let's say that at that church that I had got caught embezzling money from the offering. This is make-believe. It never happened. And let's say that the elders called me in and they were going to fire me and terminate my relationship with the church. But more so than that, they were going to do it in a public manner, according to scripture. An elder who sins and is confronted should should be done publicly so that it's a lesson to all. And not only that, they were going to then in front of the congregation, handcuff me and have the sheriff take me off and they were going to prosecute to the full extent of the law. And then I end up in court, and the judge throws the whole thing out, and he says, and I'm going to pay for your trip to Cancun. How's that? Totally undeserved grace, isn't it? You need to have kind of that mindset as we try to appreciate what's happening now in the lives of Joseph and his ten brothers And all that's going on in this relationship, we are in Genesis chapter 43, and I'm always sensitive to the fact that some of you are brand new to the story. Others of you um, have been plowing through it with me here. 
and you've been uh, right with it. You know exactly what's happening. But if you'll recall, we are in the seven years of famine in Egypt, and Joseph is the leader, second in command, under Pharaoh himself only, and he is the administrator of all of the food that had been stored up in the seven years of plenty. And last week in chapter 42... Um, we know that Jacob had looked at his sons and said, stop looking at each other and go down and get us some food. They had gone down there with their donkeys, gotten their grain, filled their sacks with grain. Joseph recognized his brothers, remember? And he had the power to squish them, didn't he? And did they deserve being squished? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like beetles on a sidewalk. But Joseph had the grace, didn't he? to look at them, and to love them. Now, that grace is going to reflect even more as, as, as a type of Christ today, as we're going to do something that um, is quite a challenge for me. I don't know if you're quite ready for this, but we're going to go clear into chapter 45. We're going to do 43, 44, and into 45 today. Are you ready? Say yes. Are you ready to be here till 3 o'clock? Say no. All right. The story is, is a story that can't be interrupted, and, and it has a flow to it. And so we're going to take God's word. We're going to begin at chapter 43, and we're going to go through, and I'm going to interrupt myself as I read, and we're going to have some comment so that we understand what's happening. And it is going to take us quite a while to just get through our story. When we get through our story, we have three incredible pictures of undeserved grace that are going to shine through in this story. And we're going to apply those to our lives as we stand before a holy God in Christ. So I hope you'll stay with it and understand what's happening. So Joseph's brothers have gone back. Do you remember that he kept one of them back in jail? He wanted to make sure they would come back. Do you remember his name? It was Simeon. We'll mention him again in just a minute. He sends them back. And do you remember what he told them was the only condition by which he would ever receive them into his presence again. Bring your little young brother Benjamin back, and if you don't have youngest brother Benjamin, then don't even come back into my country. All right? So the dad's name is Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. They've been, the writer, Moses, the historian, has been using the name Jacob for the last several chapters, even though his name has already been changed. And you will notice a couple of interesting things concerning uh, names. And one is that in this text, he's going to use the name Israel, his new name for Jacob. All right. And um, that's just kind of interesting to note. So when we say the word Israel or the name Israel, that's Papa Jacob that we're talking about here. All right. The second thing that I think is kind of interesting, and it, it kind of caused a little chuckle from me because uh, we sometimes around Fellowship Bible Church, and this is kind of a male church here, and sometimes the guy talk and trash talk, um, we say to each other, we'll bump each other on the chest or something, we'll say, you the man, you the man. Well, in this passage, you're going to notice that over and over, as Jacob and his sons, when we start the story, because they're back in Canaan, and they're out of food, and they're having a conversation about what to do about going back to Egypt, and they're going to keep talking about what the man said. And it's going to be over and over. It's about ten times. The man said this. 
And he really is the man in the story, and that's Joseph. So don't miss that, okay? Every time it says the man, that's Joseph. Every time it says Israel, that's Jacob that we're talking about, all right? So they're hungry, all right? And, they have a, and their hunger is, number one, their motivation to return to Egypt. Let's read about it, beginning in Genesis 43. And we are now going to make our way through two and a half chapters. So buckle up and stick with me, okay? It's a really an amazing story, and I think we'll benefit greatly from it. Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with us. And Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Let's just stop there and think about what's happening. Okay, so their motivation is hunger. Number one, we break down the story that they are hungry and they have a motivation to return. The motivation is starvation, all right? But number two, we see that Papa Bear, Israel, is in a mindset of procrastination in returning to Israel. And he even says, why don't you go get us a little bit of food? Did you notice that in there? If you're starving and you've got to make a several hundred mile trip into Egypt and come back, why would you get a little bit of food? You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get a couple of his sons to run down there and do a back alley transaction with somebody, get some food and get out of there without them remembering that Benjamin is the one that has to go down there as their ticket to get more grain. And that's what I think he's saying. And he says, go get us a little bit of food. Just run in and run out. But Judah, did you notice that Judah is the one who is talking now? So this chapter begins with a dialogue between Israel, Jacob, the father, and his fourth-born son, Judah. Do you remember anything interesting about Judah? Remember that story in chapter 38? The story of Joseph began in 37, and then chapter 38 interrupts it, and it's this almost like gross story about Judah. He has three godless sons whom... God killed off the first and the second one, and then he wouldn't marry the third one to his first daughter-in-law. And then his first daughter, his daughter-in-law disguises herself as a prostitute, and Judah himself goes and lies down with her and impregnates his own daughter-in-law. This guy's a piece of work. These boys are rough. These guys are not living for God quite the way they want, the way they ought to. But at the same time, do you remember who it is through whom the promised one comes? That would be Jesus. The Abrahamic covenant was that God would bless the world with Messiah. He would raise up a nation. Through, through that nation, Jesus would be born. And it was from the tribe of Judah. So this is the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus himself. It's interesting that the fourthborn is sort of taking on the leadership role in this story. He's the one that is kind of making decisions. Do you remember that when they got back in the end of chapter 42, that it was the firstborn Reuben who had been talking, and Reuben was the one who said, um, listen, when we go back to get more food, we've got to take Benjamin. Jacob said, no way you're taking Benjamin. I'll die if you take Benjamin because he'll never come back, and that would kill me. I just can't stand that. I've already lost one son. That would be Joseph. They think he's dead still. 
All right? They still haven't figured out that Joseph is the man in Egypt. And so Reuben was talking, and Reuben did that funny deal that we talked about referenced briefly last week. Remember, he said, listen, Pop, send Benjamin, and if anything happens to Benjamin, you can kill two of my sons. And we talked about how that was kind of crazy thinking that a father who lost his son would somehow find comfort in then killing two of his grandsons. Well, I think that Reuben has kind of marginalized himself. We will find out later in upcoming chapters that as Jacob, Israel, is on his deathbed and gives his blessing to his sons, his, two, his 12 sons and his two grandsons, the two sons of Joseph, we will find out that he gives not a blessing to Reuben, but he gives an unblessing to Reuben. Because why? Do you remember what Reuben did? Reuben, in a very public manner, had gone and done what? Made it known that he had slept with one of his father's wives, the maidservant of Leah. He had slept with her. And Jacob and Reuben are on the outs after that. The next two born are Levi and Simeon. And we've already ascertained that Simeon is where? He's in Egypt in jail. All right? All right? And Levi, you'll recall, was also the co-conspirator with Simeon who had put those guys to the sword that they had had circumcised, the whole community, and then they waited till the third day when everyone was sore. It's quite a story. It was a few weeks ago, maybe months now, and then they went in and committed genocide with the whole community and wiped them out, took the women and the children. So these guys are really wicked sons, and it appears that Judah is the one who has stepped up now and is kind of the lead voice for all of the boys And he's the one that's taking leadership to try to cut through his father's procrastination to deal with the issue of starvation so that they can get some more food and come back. Let's get back to our story. We've got a long ways to go. Israel blames these boys. He's casting blame. I think that Israel is not in a good position of leadership as head of his home. Verse 6, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man that you would bring and had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves, verse 7, and our family. And he said, is your father still living? He asked us, do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. Come on, Pop. All we did was tell the truth. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. So this is a little bit of a more... um, morally tenable position than what Reuben had suggested, kill my two sons. He says, just know that I will, I will personally bear the responsibility. As it is, verse 10, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. There's the matter of procrastination. Israel, Jacob, just does not want to deal with this. He is so worried about Benjamin. But we get to the third part of our story, and that is Jacob's resignation. He just has to give in. He has no other option. Verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. 
You say, I thought they were starving to death. I would say that probably these are small reserves that they had left in the cupboards. And these are items that we know uh, from other studies that were not common in Egypt. And so they had a little bit of a value, a little bit of a sparkle to them that they would take things from Canaan down into Egypt and would give some gifts. Some of them were edible. Some of them were spices and so forth. But these almonds as pistachios and so forth. All right. He says, take, verse 12, double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Remember that in 42, when they had headed out and they opened up their grain sacks, there Joseph had planted through his steward the very money that they were supposed to pay for the, sil- for the grain. And they were really worked up about this. So take double the amount of silver. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty, that's the word, the name for God, El Shaddai, the Almighty One, may he grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother Benjamin, your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And I really don't think that this is a great step of faith for Israel, I think it is, it is a, a resignation. It is a giving in to, to hopelessness. I don't think he's filled with faith right now. He's like, okay, take these gifts. Maybe you can buy your way through the system down there somehow. Maybe they will find it um, you know, palatable to receive your gifts and know that you have double your silver. Interesting, isn't it, that 10 boys who got 20 pieces of silver for a brother that they couldn't stand 22 years at least, or 29 years before, whatever, 22 years before, they couldn't stand it. They took 20 pieces of silver freed from Ishmaelite slave traders are now themselves heading into Israel with double their silver. That's 10 times 2 20 volumes of silver going in there. I doubt that has any meaning at all. I just thought that was interesting. (laughs) They didn't make money on their brother. They're giving money to Egypt now, aren't they? Oh, the regret that these boys must have lived with. Well, they head down. Uh, Israel says, I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And even though he calls on the name of El Shaddai, I think it's a little bit of a moaning, may God help us all. You know, that's not a statement of faith for most of us, is it? We have no other, we can't figure it out and we haven't really turned our problem over to God, but we just kind of cry out, oh, Lord, help us. That's really not much of a prayer, is it? And I think that's a little bit what Israel does here. Instead of taking spiritual leadership in his home and saying, boys, let's get on our face before God. Let's cry out to God. Let's see what God's going to do here. It's like, maybe El Shaddai can pull this off. Woe is me. Woe is me. And so then Judah takes off with them. So the men took the gifts, verse 15, and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. And they hurried down to Egypt and presented them to Joseph. They hurried because of their father's procrastination and decision-making, and their children are starving to death, so they have to get down there, get grain back here for their livestock and for their family. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, so it jumps right down to Egypt, we don't know the approach, but here Joseph sees them. He said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. And he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. 
So they got this conspiracy thing going in their head and they're frightened. And imagine that. Think about what they're feeling. They go down from Canaan into Egypt and the first thing when they get there then, you know, they receive a special invitation. The fourth part of our story is this special invitation from this second in command to go to his house to eat lunch. Well, what's that all about? I don't know what's going to happen. They know that he's like a king. He's got a dungeon in his house. He probably wants to trap us there, put us in his dungeon, keep our donkeys. I don't know what he would do those, but keep our donkeys and make us his slaves. They're filled with fear. They, they have no idea what's going on. And it would be odd, wouldn't it? They show up for grain. They brought Benjamin, like the guy said, and he says, go to my house. Fix a big feast, he says to his steward. All right, let's continue. Verse 19. So they went up to Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. And notice the steward says, oh, it's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. I don't know if they have ears to hear. I don't know what's going on inside their thinking. But all of a sudden, this Egyptian steward is talking about their God, the God of their fathers, talking about that they've been blessed with this silver, letting Simeon come to them, but they're still fearful, they're confused. The steward them, verse 24, took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon, remember their pistachio nuts, because they had heard that they were there, there to eat. When Joseph came home, they presented him with the gifts they had brought into the house, And look at this. And they bowed down before him to the ground. Every time I read that, that's just amazing, isn't it? And he asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And look at this. And they bowed low to pay him honor. His dream fulfilled right in front of him. Multiple times, isn't it? They even reference his father as his servant. Remember in his dream, even his father and mother would bow down to him. And as he looked about, he saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, and he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. And he went into his private room and he wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and then the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is detestable to Egyptians. You got a little bit of a racism thing going here. You got a cultural norm and that is that in the Egyptians thought themselves far superior to these Hebrews and they wanted nothing to do with them and so they have this divided dining room and they're eating at a different place 
And Joseph, he's in charge, so he sits at his own table. All the brothers are sitting at their table, and then the Egyptians are separate at their table. And one of the things we see in that setup is a clue as to why God is going to end up bringing Israel and his boys down into Egypt for the next, what, 400 plus years to raise up a great nation. What is one of the number one problems that Israel's boys are having back home in Canaan land? It's Canaanite girls. They want the Canaanite women. And God said, no, don't do that. And so when they get to Egypt, they're only going to have Israelite girls. That's it. Hebrew girls, that's it. And God is going to preserve his nation by putting them in a place where the Egyptians will ostracize them, ultimately make them their slaves when they get powerful enough. They will beat them down into submission. And then God blesses them. And that's when, remember, um, and this is when Exodus, the book of Exodus starts, and Moses is born, and the Israelite midwives, the, the babies are coming so fast, we can't stop it and we can't change it. And And the nation multiplies and soon the Red Sea crosses and Pharaoh's army drowns. And that's the story of Moses some 400 plus years later. God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? What seemed to be such heartbreak and tragedy, God is using for good, isn't he? He's setting it all up. Joseph's going to acknowledge that in a few minutes. Well, we're in the middle of his special invitation. And they're eating now by special invitation at Joseph's house. And I want you to see something else that's kind of interesting. I call this the uh, uh, impossible calculation. Notice what's happening in the next verse. The men, verse 33, had been seated before him. That would be the man, Joseph. Um, They had him seated um, before him in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest. And then it says, and they looked at each other in astonishment. So they show up. They think their heads are going to roll. They don't know what's going on. They think at the least they're going to get their donkey stolen from them. They sit down to eat at Joseph's table and they look around and they're nervous and they don't know what to do with the fork that's at the top of their plate and the two forks over here and they just don't know what to do. And they get the napkin on their lap and they all look around and all of a sudden it dawns on them that they have been seated in their birth order. It's like, what's that all about? How did that happen? John Morris, um, John Morris, in his devotional commentary on the book of Genesis, said that there are 39, excuse me, 39,917,000 different orders in which the 11 could have been seated mathematically. That means that the odds of them by random choice or selection or appointment to be seated in their birth order is is 40 million to one. You'd think they would start figuring something out here, you know? How's your dad? How's your little brother? You're all seated in birth order. They're so frightened. They can't, they're just besides them. They just want to get out of there. They just want to get out of there. All right? And I thought that was an interesting uh, notation that the historian accounted for us. And when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, verse 34, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone, anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Joseph is beginning to test them even more. He's looking for what's been going on inside their hearts. And do you remember older brothers who couldn't stand a younger brother to the point they threw him in a pit and walked away from his wailing 
Now they have a younger brother who is a full-blood brother to that brother that they destroyed, took his bloodied coat back to his father. And so in front of them, Joseph is watching to see what happens when Benjamin gets treated with special favor. And it says they had a great time eating together. Kind of got over that little bump, first test. Hey, let's ratchet it up. Let's go from like third gear to fourth and maybe overdrive. Let's go through verse chapter 44 because um, they move now from their special invitation dinner to a, what it becomes a hopeless situation for them again in 44 as Joseph heats up the testing of his brothers. We want to get to chapter 45 where he's going to reveal himself. It's very emotional. Chapter 44, here we go. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Okay, we've seen that before. Going to pull that trick again. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And the steward did, as Joseph said, as morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. Okay, you can only imagine their relief. Their grain is loaded. They're heading out of town. Let's get back to Papa. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this cup the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. That little phrase, this cup used for divination, I think is Joseph just intimidating them. He's spoofing them. I don't think Joseph ever used his cup to interpret dreams or to be a diviner. That would be something that was common among the soothsayers of Egypt, and they would mix drinks. They would mix wine and oil or different drinks and and shake it around and look at it, and then they would supposedly hear from the spirit world and be able to do things. Joseph is just using it to kind of intimidate those guys. Why would you do this? I know what you're thinking. I know where you are. You have money in your sacks too. No, we don't. Then they open, let's read about it. Here's what happens. They had not gone far from the city, verse 4. Isn't this the cup my master drinks from, verse 5? When he caught up with them, verse 6, he repeated these words to them. But, why? but they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. Don't you think they were pretty careful making sure when they put their silver down on the counter that they knew they gave their silver? We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. They've spoken a little too soon, haven't they? And a little too powerfully. Very well then, the steward said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Can you imagine what's going on in their minds now? At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. There it is again. And Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say? See, I think the whole thing, he's just playing with their minds. The whole, the seated at the table by birth order. They're thinking, this guy's a diviner. This guy just knows stuff. Don't mess with him and his cup. Can you imagine these guys coming back on their donkeys? 
They're heading out of town. They're like, let's get out of here. And then here comes the steward riding up on his big stallion with his armed guard. Whoa, guys, hold up. We need to inspect the sacks. Okay? They go through the sacks, find the money, find the cup. Before they started, of course, Judah probably spouted off, if you find it, we'll kill them. We'll all be your servants. And there they are, and they literally rent their clothes. This was cultural, to literally take their garments and just tear them. And can you imagine how they felt turning back in that city, not gone an hour, and they're coming back in, they have ripped up clothes, their heads are down, they have no idea what they're going to do. And it becomes evident to Joseph that their number one concern is their old papa, Israel, back home. Okay, look what he says then. They tore their clothes. They loaded their donkeys. They returned to the city. Joseph was in the house. He says to them, what have you done? Why have you done it? Verse 16. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? And then he reveals his heart even more to Joseph. And he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. He's he's, this over. We're your slaves. That's it. And God is paying us back all of a sudden something that had been buried for at least 22 years is now right here in their face. You talk about the past coming to haunt the present. You talk about living with hidden sin. You talk about living with guilt. You talk about letting sin just lie in the closet like some Edgar Allan Poe story speaking out to you at night. The heart that won't stop beating. It's the heart of their brother. The telltale heart, right, of Joseph just pounds on in their brain. This cries, and there it is. What can we say, my Lord? You have us, it's over. But Joseph is not done testing them, and in this hopeless situation, Joseph says to them, verse 17, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to you, my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? In other words, he's reminding Joseph what you asked us to begin with. Do you have a father? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Remember, this was Rachel's only other son, and she died in childbirth, his favorite beloved wife. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. Joseph's taking all this in. Okay, this is Judah talking to Joseph, and he's showing his heart, isn't he? Boys who at one time couldn't have cared less about the grief to their father are now begging for the life and comfort of their elderly father. But you told us, verse 23, you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. 
And then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down. We cannot see the man's face unless your youngest, our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I said, he, was surely, he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. Verse 29, if you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, Joseph, he'll die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant, me, I guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all of my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not Let me see the misery that would come upon my father. What do you think Joseph's thinking right now? I wish you'd had that attitude a few years, a couple decades ago. So there's Judah. Judah begging. He's begging Zaphnath-Paneah, that's Joseph's Egyptian name, the man, begging the man, let Benjamin go back to my elderly father, your servant, and let me stay and I'll just be your slave forever. Do you think that Joseph is looking into the eyes of a changed brother? You think that Joseph is looking into the eyes of a man who regrets the sin of the past? I think so. Then Joseph could no longer control himself at all before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, Doesn't this have to be one of the moments in all of the Bible that you would love to have been present? It's powerful, isn't it? And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. The the talk went through the servant's quarter and through the officer's court so fast. Did you hear Joseph wailing in there? He found his brothers. They knew he was a Hebrew. He sees them. Joseph said to his brothers, verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They they, they can't pull it together. They're speechless. Their minds can't comprehend what their ears are taking in. It's too powerful of a moment. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. Come here. Come here. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, listen, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God, listen, my brothers, this was a divine, sovereign appointment of God. What do you think it meant when he said to those brothers, 
Do not be angry with yourselves. Forgive yourselves. You don't say that unless you've already forgiven somebody, have you? Joseph has forgiven them. Did they deserve it? They didn't deserve one bit of it, did they? Let's finish. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. We can see for ourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all of his brothers and he wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. What do you think they talked about? I think they said like this, Joseph, we're so sorry, Joseph. Joseph, we didn't know what we were thinking. Joseph, we were just stupid. We were sinful. We were wrong. Joseph, how could you forgive us? Don't you think they had to be talking like that? Forget it, he said. Forgive yourselves. Don't be angry with yourselves. And when the news, verse 16, reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials, what a great testimony to Joseph. They were pleased. Good, good. Isn't that great? Did you hear the news? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Do those boys deserve that? If anybody deserved to be squished, it was them. And you are directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father to come. Now look at verse 20. And never mind about your belongings because the best of all of Egypt will be yours. You scumbags. (laughs) And so we have the third of three beautiful pictures. Will you listen closely in the next five minutes? Could change your life. Picture number one that we have of the beauty of our relationship with God through Christ is the undeserved feast to which we are invited. Number one, the undeserved feast. Remember when they came down the second time? Joseph says, come to my house. Steward, go, fill the, go kill the fatted calf. Reminds you of another story, doesn't it, in Luke 14. Get out some robes, get out some rings, get out some sandals because my brothers, my brothers who did me dirt, they are now brokenhearted and they are repentant and they wish they didn't do it and they love their papa and I want to feed them at my table. Do his brothers deserve to eat at his table? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And in Luke 14, when the, when the father of the prodigal son, and you can read it later, sat on his porch 
in the cool of the day, rocking in his chair, longing to see his son. And the day when he saw the silhouette of his boy and he recognized it and he ran to him, the first thing he did is said, sit down at my table and eat. Sit down at my table and eat. Do you know that we have been invited to feast at a banquet table? The kingdom of God is like a banquet, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is like a banquet and the table has been spread. But some people, they make up excuses. Oh, I just got married. I can't go. Other people say, I just bought some oxen. I got to go look at them. I can't go. Then go out on the highways and the byways and bring them in. And you have been invited to come sit at the table in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means to enter into something that you do not deserve. It's an undeserved moment where you recognize that God wants me to come be at his table. That means to be friends with the living God, a holy, righteous God. How do I, a sinner, become friends with a holy, righteous God and get to eat at his table only through the invitation ticket that is Jesus Christ alone? I, can't, I don't deserve to be there. I didn't do anything to get there. And now I'm on the plane to Cancun and I didn't do anything. And I don't say, ain't I cool? I say, wow. How awesome that he would have me come to his table. There's the undeserved feast. Gets even better than that though, doesn't it? How about the picture there in the beginning of chapter 45 when he kicks everybody, Joseph kicks everybody out of the room, leave my presence. There was no one with Joseph. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and the boys are reconciled together. And we've already argued that they have forgiven one another and they have been repentant and that they have had a change of heart. And we have the moment number two of undeserved forgiveness on the part of Joseph, don't we? Did Joseph have to forgive those guys? They certainly didn't deserve it. It would have been well within his power to have them with their own shovel dig a pit and put them each in their own pit and let them starve. Or like on uh, Jeremiah Johnson or whatever it was, when bury them up to their neck and then run the horses over the top of them. Or let the ants eat their eyes out. Do something that they deserve. They're dirty, rotten boogers to the core. And they've destroyed your life. And he says... Not only do you come and eat at my table, but stop being angry with yourself. I forgive you. How great is that? Anybody here offend a holy God in your life? Turn to Ephesians, please, chapter 2, and it's our final thought of the day. Ephesians chapter 2. Not only do we have the undeserved feast and the undeserved forgiveness, but we have in our story that we just emphasized the undeserved favor. Not only do they get forgiven, but they get favor. Go, we're going to move you into Goshen. Man, that's the high end of town. Pharaoh says, we'll send carts, leave everything, bring the people. I'm going to give you all brand new stuff. You don't deserve that. You're the ones that just ruined a guy's life. You get an undeserved feast, you get an undeserved forgiveness, and now you have this unbelievable favor that is totally undeserved. Who do you think you are? I'll tell you who I think I am. I think I am the most undeserving of the undeserving. Every once in a while in my office, I'll have people with tears coming down their cheeks say to me, I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived. And I want to say, well, you're pretty close. 
the dirty, rotten stuff they've done to their family and the dirty, rotten stuff they've done to the people that trusted them and the dirty, rotten stuff and the dirty, rotten stuff and the dirty, rotten stuff. And sometimes I want to go, so I don't hear what they're saying. But I can tell them, you know, there's a guy named the Apostle Paul who already has your spot. He said he was the worst of all the sinners. So you might be like second in line. But when we turn to what the Apostle Paul, the dirty, rottenest of all the sinners said, that means worse than Reuben, who slept with his father's wife, Bilhah. That means worse than Simeon and Levi, who committed genocide. He said, verse 3 of Ephesians 2, all of us also lived among them at one time. Who? How many of us? All of us. We lived among them who the the dirty of the world, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That means no matter when you lived, where you lived, what you've done, that when a holy God looks at you, you are an object of his wrath. You're like a dirty blackbird on a telephone line that the kid wants to shoot off with his 22. I don't know why, but I love to shoot him down. I'm a holy God and I will shoot you down. You are an object of my wrath. It's positional. You don't deserve anything else but his wrath. And he says, but because of his, what? His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, there it is, the undeserved favor. It is by His grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And it's not by any works that you can do so no one can boast. But we become God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Did you get verse 6? And God raised him up with us, with Christ, and then he seated us. Where did he seat us? He seated us at an undeserved banquet. He gave us a feast that we don't deserve. All of the riches that are in Christ, we can sit down and consume. And not only that, even while we were dead in our transgressions, through undeserved favor... He gave us a forgiveness. You've been saved. You have an undeserved forgiveness in Christ. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything to merit it. And in fact, every time you waved around your good works, a holy God looked at it and he went and held his nose and he said, ooh, that's filthy rags. Anything good you could do. The filthiest of the grotesque rags you could pull up off of some surgical table or something. This is my good works. In God's eyes, he's so holy and his expectations and his demands are so high that the finest things you can present to him on a platter of china look through his lenses of holiness as though it were filthy rags. But don't worry about it because of his undeserved favor to you, because of his love and his kindness. He gives you forgiveness. You don't have to do anything to be forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. Look what it says. And it says, And then he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. In other words, we are now, spiritually speaking, on display for all of eternity, a trophy case of dirty, rotten sinners who have been redeemed given an undeserved place at the table, given undeserved forgiveness, and now given undeserved favor of being positioned in Christ so that God can show us off to others. See this guy right here? His name's Alonzo Puller. He's the dirtiest rotten of them all. But I gave him something he didn't deserve. How's that? How's that? Out of my love and my kindness for you, I'll take your sin and I'll put it on myself. And then you become a trophy of my grace so that for all of the ages, eternity to come, I can just show you off as an example of my love and kindness, he says. Wow. Whoa. I think this is what some of you have been waiting for. Because you're like one of Joseph's brothers. That's me. That's you. We stand before our Lord Jesus and we think, when's he going to whack my head off? And he says, you know what? All the scummy, dirty, rotten, sinful things, you've broken every one of my laws. You've hurt people and down the line. And I don't need to give you examples. Your minds are full of examples of your own sinfulness. And he said, pulls back the table and he says, sit down at my banquet table. I have a place for you. And by the way, come here, come close to me. He puts his arms around him and with tears, he says, I forgive you. And then he says, let me give you favor like you can't imagine. You can't even imagine the depth of the riches, the wealth, what it means to be identified with Christ, seated in the heavenlies. Some of us need to stop working at our forgiveness, don't we? And we need to just receive this forgiveness. Some of you, this is what you've been looking for. Some of you, you just can't get out of your mind the dirty, rotten stuff back in the pit days. And maybe it'll take heaven before it washes away completely because we're human. But you need to start getting your mind on the heavenlies and receive once for all this forgiveness. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But it's for free. Is that amazing? Not by works lest anybody should boast. Let's bow our heads, please. And so before we close in prayer, with your head bowed, first of all, would you admit that you're a sinner today, kind of like Joseph's brothers, dead in trespasses and sins, Do you recognize that when Jesus went to the cross and he took your sin upon himself, you didn't deserve it? And have you accepted this forgiveness that he offers as a free gift? Do you know what it is to say, my chains have fallen off. I've been redeemed. I've been set free from the prison of my sinfulness. And I stand in Christ alone forgiven. When God looks at me, I don't have to try to think of some good works that looks like, anyway, dirty rags in his face. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in whom I stand. You can be a trophy of his grace, set up for a watching world, 
to see the undeserved favor of a loving, holy God who took his own son who he loved, but out of his kindness, he transfers your sin onto his son and he takes his son righteousness and he transfers it to you. All you have to do is admit that you're that sinner and believe that Jesus is the Christ and he did this for you and by faith enter into this salvation. It's too big of a moment to pass up, my friend. So in your heart, what is it saying right now? Are you confident to enter the presence of a holy God? Or do you think he's going to make you his slave, steal your donkeys and take your food and put you in a dungeon? Or can you look at him and laugh and say, only by the grace of our Lord Jesus can he look at me. It's mine. By no deserved favor. We're on our way to Cancun heaven. We didn't do anything to get there except believe the message and accept it by faith. It's your moment. You have to take it from here. You have to do business with God right now. I can't do it for you. This is an individual matter where you get out of your pit of sinfulness and get at the banquet table of forgiveness and favor by admitting your sinfulness and believing in Christ. You might say something like this, Heavenly Father, I recognize it now like never before that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for me and I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. Thank you for my undeserved seat at the banquet table. That's your prayer today. You've become a new creation in Christ. Rise up to walk in newness of life. And so, Father, give a growing understanding of these matters, these marvelous doctrines of our salvation so beautifully pictured in the life of Joseph and his brothers. And would you please give us a a grasp now as we enter the Christmas season in the weeks ahead of why you loved us and out of your kindness you gave Jesus Christ to be born in that little manger, to go up and go to that cross, to be our sin bearer, our substitute. Thank you for this great salvation, this undeserved spot at the table. Now help us to go from here, Lord, and live like trophies of your grace ought to live. In Jesus' name I pray.